Alright guys, welcome to another episode of Audiodrome. I'm Riley, with me is Doug. Hello. And Carlos. Yep. So getting right into it, I found uh, found a a suitable news story here that uh, that says an Ohio man dies after sitting in a chair for two years. (laughs) Mm. Is this this the guy that had his skin fused? Yes. Is that him? Yes, it is him. So he finally died. I didn't know he lived in Ohio. Yeah, he lived in Ohio, but I think he was taken to a hospital in West Virginia. Um, he, with with chair. Well, I don't know. Did was the chair? Did, did they cut the chair out of him? I can't um, imagine. That's probably, why, that's probably why he died, though. West Virginia is noted for having like terrible hospitals. It, uh-huh. Back and that the, up. And, and, and bad chair cutters too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't think I wouldn't think you'd take someone from Ohio to West Virginia. Maybe I need to brush up on my on my uh, geography over in that in that part of the country. But as a new American, I'd suggest you do. Mm. You should be familiar with our country. Uh, are do they are do they border each other? I feel terrible asking this. No, I don't believe so. Oh well, then I don't feel that bad anymore. No. They're not um, they're not close to each other, right? No, I no, not at all. Oh, you no. know what? They did, yes, they are. They border each other. <laughs> I just <laughs> looked it up. How embarrassing, we start How embarrassing for us all. No, nope, mm-hmm. I'm leaving it. <laughs> no, no, of course. Um, <laughs> Ohio and West Virginia? Yeah, I would not have thought that. But anyway, that Are should not be the right? focus. Uh, so you guys had heard of it about this guy, I guess. I, it, it was from um, a little while ago. Uh, yeah, definitely. His, and his girlfriend, like, basically enabled him by, like, taking care of him and feeding him while there was, like, maggots and feces, uh, you know, basically. And his skin obviously fused to the leather or whatever. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. Why is why is this happening? I I thought I was reading a synopsis of Seven at first, but yeah, seriously, it's a Seven. It always comes up. <laughs> um, so, Do they say exactly like what he died from? Uh, he didn't Broken just up. die. I just want to. I just want to. This is just a man who has died. Apparently, you had. <laughs> I think we should cut that out. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, he didn't recently die. He died in April. Oh, I didn't know. He, oh. I, I didn't know he died though. I feel like I've already heard this. Oh, you well. probably heard it in Continue. April. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> Since you knew all the facts about it, he was uh, he was a forty three man. Uh, forty three. Forty three. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of those forty three men. You know them. <laughs> uh. He was a forty three year old man, and he uh, he just um, he just sat down one day. Used up. <laughs> I've he, had it. Yeah, his had, knees started to hurt. He sat down. He refused to get up, and eventually, fused to the uh, to the chair, and died. And you know, I, I and I might be completely incorrect here, but but I think the whole skin fusing to the fabric thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the only time that's happened. I, I think I can't be reading multiple stories about this yeah well i think what happens is you get like bed sores and then the bed sores try to heal you know and they like like getting a band-aid stuck in you this is i'm just guessing here but this makes sense to me you know it's kind of fuses to the upholstery with all the plasma and stuff and 
that's just a cycle that continues and pretty next thing you know you're fused to the upholstery before you know it you blink your eyes and you're part of the chair <laughs> well you're sitting there for two years i mean yeah that's like you know it's it's easily one of the more disgusting things i would say well, i it think is. it's safe to say that he lived a, a good life a full life oh that's you know. that's sad when well the thing is, uh, I think the point we're missing here is the relationship he had with his girlfriend. I think that is the true, the true testament of love. Uh, this guy basically handicapped himself, and she was there for him every step of the way. You know, to me, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. That's it's actually that's depressing, super super <laughs> depressing. Yeah, what's her deal? I, I I'm very curious about. This, Maybe he was super thing. handsome, and she didn't think she could do better. He probably was super handsome. <laughs> he's, he's, he sounds like a handsome guy. That's why he sat in a chair. Every time he went outside, girls kept hitting on him. He's he was like, enough he's is enough. Of, he's sick enough of is enough. <laughs> so I'm tired of all this attention. <laughs> Sitting in this chair for two years. So have you guys heard oh. that uh, marijuana was uh, ruled by the federal government to have no... Um, acceptable medical use and should remain in the same class of drugs as heroin that is ridiculous this well, is same this class is breaking drugs as heroin yeah i think it's like schedule one or whatever who said that the uh the the um <laughs> federal government ruled it i mean i don't i don't know who's ruling the in the federal government but chief counsel for uh um i'm guessing they're old old people <laughs> Old people. <laughs> that sounds like old people talk to me. <laughs> Definitely does. That's old people. Old people said it. So what does that mean for the people who have cards and stuff? Well, I mean, there's still that. There's still that legal ambiguity with with California. Oh, considering it, you know. Uh, I mean, it's not like marijuana is like more illegal nationally now. They're just saying, nope, we're not going down the medical route. We're not doing that. Exactly. I mean, this is this is something that has happened two other times. In 1972, uh, people petitioned to have it reclassified because that's how this happened. Someone petitioned to have it reclassified, or not someone, but you know, a group petitioned to have it reclassified, and then uh, it took several years um, to uh, to come up with a ruling. It took nine years. The first time it was in 1972. It took them 17 years to rule on that. The second time, someone or you know, people filed in 1995. And that was denied in 2001. So it's yeah, like you said, there's nothing. It, this doesn't change anything except that, um, kind of back to the drawing board. But now that they can, now that they've ruled, uh, it can be appealed. So that's the one mm. positive. Oh, uh, okay. What's what's taking them so long? Are they too busy smoking all that weed? <laughs> Lazy. They gotta, they gotta smoke their Lazy. way through all all the strains to see if it if it uh, <laughs> any of them are as awesome as Cheech and Chong say. I would I'd really love to skim some of their studies and articles over like why how they came up with this this ruling. Well, I'm sure you can. I mean, you know, government I, oh, transparency. I can, never okay, never mind. I'm probably not going to do that. Yeah, <laughs> you're not you're not going to do that at all. If anything, the TV shows and movies have taught me heroin is a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, think I would so. think so, unless you watch uh, Reefer Madness or you know. Reefer Madness juxtaposed with maybe train spotting. Train spotting, you could maybe get away with that and think it might be worth doing. Really? I still haven't seen that. No, nah, probably not. Seen. It looks pretty bad. Really? It's Hair a good on. movie, but it's a, it's a pretty bad oh. uh, depiction of, of heroin. Okay. How about uh, Working for a Dream? 
Would that do you? That's about as bad as possible. That's okay. That's as dirty as it gets, really. So here's I don't, a, I don't, I don't think there's a heroin puff piece out there. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> no, we to think of one. We'll think of one. <laughs> Pull it off. So I have, I have one more, but you know, I'm just gonna kind of gloss over this because when I first saw it, it seemed interesting to me, but really, it's just, it's just sad. I think the only, uh, the only interesting part is just, um, the age of one of the, uh characters if you want to call him a character that's in a, it. a great lead into the story by so the way. a landlord shot his tenants dead in front of their kids which is really sad but the part i found interesting was that the landlord was 81 years old hmm. Which, hmm. yeah this was this happened in germany just a, a few days ago and um how old was his gun it was from uh world war ii it was it was a looper <laughs> That's what I was picturing. I was picturing a blunderbuss joints, yeah. A blunderbuss. <laughs> <laughs> why do you shoot why do you shoot them? He shot them for uh I believe just failure to pay rent. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I I can see that. I can see I can that. See that's in front of in front that's of the children. Yeah. Well those children are done. They're done they're done for. They're nine yeah. and ten. No. Oh. It's really that's sad. about the worst that's about the worst time to witness that I'd say. Speaking speaking of other horrible um, events witnessed by children, um, did you guys hear about the guy that died at the Texas Rangers game? Oh yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Going for a ball and fell like twenty feet on his head and just died right in front of his six year old. I want to say. Yeah, probably. Mm. It's pretty sad. No, I did I not did... hear about that. That's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. I'm I... not sure if he was a forty three man, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> it sucks. I don't know. That's. <laughs> Yeah, one of my uh, one of my buddies. They're well, one of my bu- oh, okay. They're taking a road trip and they stopped off at a, to see a Texas Rangers game because I believe they were playing the Angels and they're Angels fans. They're they're the two Angels fans in America, and uh, he posted on his Facebook like, "Oh man, like watch ESPN tonight. This dude fell like out of his out of his chair. It's hilarious." And then someone posted, oh. and then someone posted he died, and then. Oh. The uh, the guy who saw it was like, I know, man, that's terrible. <laughs> you, you can't recover from that, though. That's... He didn't know I, I take it? it was... He didn't know he died, yeah, yeah. And I guess, um, I heard this secondhand, I didn't um, see this myself, but I guess like the ballpark announcer or the person doing the commentary on TV or the radio like made some joke, made some joke, like trying to trying to be humorous about it and stuff, and then... He died, and so there's a bit of egg on that person's face. Oh, that's a bummer. 20 yeah. feet. That is a sizable fall. It's a sizable fall, yeah. I think when I you mean, just hear 20 feet, you don't really think, oh, man, that's that's going to be fatal. But I think if you were to stand on the top of you know a 20-foot structure and look down and think, Can, and could I cr- survive this, you would definitely come to the conclusion that you could not. Yeah, I mean, probably from about, like, 10 feet if you just straight Chris Benoit it I mean you're you're in trouble by Chris Benoit do you mean uh murder your family and then commit suicide no, yeah, I, mean, I think it's Owen I Hart was, that you're referring to <laughs> I was referring to Benoit's signature move the uh flying headbutt ah uh, yes 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 Moving we yeah, exactly. on. we're not allowed to have any more wrestling <laughs> talk guys we've Sorry. exhausted our our uh we've w- our... the WWE actually called after the second or third episode I can't <laughs> exactly remember and they said that uh that is no longer fair game. Was it McMahon? Was it McMahon they called? I can't say. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't know. I don't know his voice. 
So, so what's new uh, with you guys? Well, I went to LA. Uh, I don't know if you want me to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd love it. Yeah, that, to tell us all about it. You uh, you visited uh, with uh, Doug himself, did you not? Yeah, Doug himself. Uh, the last podcast uh, was from Pasadena, and so I spent some time there. Uh, sweated quite a bit. Sorry uh, about that. <laughs> hey, man. My, my apartment does not have air conditioning, and it loves it, to trap heat. It barely has air. It, it doesn't have air. <laughs> but no, it was good. Uh, the only other times I've been to L.A. Uh, to visit Doug were uh, drinking a lot of sodas, we'll say, on his birthday. You're allowed and, to reference drinking. Okay. And uh, and going to Vegas from L.A. So this is like the first time I've ever actually explored L.A. itself and kind of, uh, you know, played a little bit of the tourist, but mostly just kind of hung out with old friends and uh, met some new ones and just kind of went all over it. It was definitely a lot different than I expected. Um, I was expecting a lot of people doing drugs and, and prostituting and, and shooting on the streets. And uh, it turned out that uh, for the most part, I mean, everybody was, I mean, all the, the randos that I met were pretty cool. And uh, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a good trip. So, so you were expecting the shield and you got, what, yeah, nine hundred two and zero or Pleasant Pleasantville. <laughs> oh, Pleasantville. Wow. <laughs> I, w- no. I would I would say it was a little more Melrose Place than nine hundred two and zero. Really, perfect. Haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. It was an older you... set. Is that what you're saying? The older set. Um, just lower stakes. I think. I just felt like nine hundred two and zero was just a little more intense than Melrose Place. Did Melrose Place get pretty crazy though? I have no yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. Were people like about. murdering other people in that show? Yeah, there's like, people yeah. murdering people in all those shows. Well, look at you. I didn't I had no idea you had such an encyclopedic knowledge of the uh, soap ops. Yeah. I actually I actually watched an episode of the new 90210 today. Oh. Today. And, Probably shouldn't uh, brag about that, but go ahead. Uh, a young woman was haunted by a ghost. Okay. That is um, stupid. The ghost encouraged her to kill herself. Um, a young couple freshly graduated from high school got married because, uh, well, they love each other, but also the male is terminally ill with cancer. Oh, my God. The mother uh, of the bride did not agree with the marriage because he was terminally ill and didn't like the idea that her daughter was going to be a widow at 25. This and is all one episode? It's all one episode, yeah. And it's funny because, like, I'm watching this. Uh, my girlfriend's roommate was watching it, so I was watching it. And, like, I felt like I knew exactly what was going on the whole time. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like if I watch any other show after it's been on for, like... I mean, the new 90210 has been on for, like, four years or something. I mean, it's been on for a little mm-hmm. bit. It's been a while. But I, I just started watching it, and, like, I just... I've, I felt like I didn't ask any questions about what was happening. Like, it just really, really spoon-feeds you. It's kind of nice. That is kind of nice. That's some, That's how you tell it's good TV. That's how you know it's good TV and it's good writing. When you don't have to follow along. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so predictable and spelled out that it is clear as day. Mm-hmm. Did uh, did Annalyn McCord look confusingly attractive? Don't know who that is. Uh, blonde with curly hair. Skinny blonde with curly hair. Skinny blonde with curly hair. She might have straight hair in this episode that I watched. She was in Nip Tuck for a while. Nip Tuck. Nip Tuck. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't recognize anyone. Uh, a young man from The Wire is like a main character on 90210. Michael? Michael, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Very so I don't know how I know that. But, oh, I like know. him. Yeah, he's great. But he's uh, he's not too good in the show. Anywho, 
Anywho, Los Angeles, a lot like Melrose Place. Well, Melrose Place took place in Los Angeles, and it was uh, it was uh, accurate, if nothing else, from yeah. what I understand. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Carlos, uh, did you have any did you have any uh, dreams while you were down in in Los Angeles that you'd like to share, or did you have any dreams? Well, that, yeah, that's that was kind of the thing. I actually did not have any dreams in L.A. Uh, partly due to the fact that uh, you like you I, lived you lived all your dreams in L.A. You didn't that's dream that, them. You lived that's, them. That's, Definitely not what I was gonna say. Okay. Were you blackout uh, drunk every time you went to bed? Is that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Blacked out is a very strong word. Uh, uh, yeah, but definitely partook, partook in some uh, some fun in that way. And so I kind of, when I do that, I kind of just sleep uh, like the like dead. The dead. Yeah. Oh yeah, I said, there you go. Yeah. Uh, but no, um, and I came back, and um, I, I'm sure that's no coincidence. Cause sometimes this happens. My brain, I'll, I'll watch a movie um that night and then and then later while i'm sleeping i'll have some sort of dream that's quasi related uh to the movie i just watched sure sure and so i i watched black swan a couple nights ago the uh darren aronofsky movie it's very good if any listeners have not uh watched it um and a quick a quick little i guess theme of it would just be kind of the the young innocent uh i guess that's the best way to explain it um female and she's kind of going up against the uh the young and kind of edgy uh female for for a lead position in uh a ballet and the kind of dichotomy as well as relationship between the two females is is pretty interesting but anyway so um this dream was very weird and, and one thing that happens to me sometimes in dreams is i will have familiar faces in them um, like people that I, I know or that I, I used to talk to. And a lot of times what will happen is when I when I wake up the next day, I'll I'll remember that they were familiar, but I won't remember like exactly who it was. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of what, go ahead. You'll know it was somebody that you knew, but you can't remember who it was. Exactly. Like like. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, for instance, uh, in this dream, it was basically kind of uh, this kind of sweeping romance me and this uh and this blonde chick who i guess in this case would kind of play the the part of the Natalie Portman kind of more innocent kind of uh wholesome uh take them home to mom type chick and you know we're going to to Paris and we're going to you know we're going to the bullfights in Spain <laughs> i don't know why we did that it's kind of weird it's cool. uh but we <laughs> it is but uh and, and no no sexy stuff involved so if you're, if you're listening for that, don't don't get excited. Tune out now. If you're listening for that, seriously, you have problems. <laughs> you're listening exactly. to the wrong show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're listening for that, uh, I'll text you my number. Um, mm. But <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it was just pretty much this big this big uh, romantic uh, scene where we're just kind of cupcaking. I don't know if you guys know what that. Means. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. Oh man. Okay. Let me let me take a moment to explain that. Recently, I learned that uh, it's a verb. Cupcaking is kind of where you're just very lovey-dovey with your significant other um, in a very, like, kissing her cheek and holding her hand, all that kind of stuff. Is, is I guess the young people refer to it as cupcaking. Okay, I can see that. It sounds um, way dirtier than, it, than the description. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's but... exactly. Exactly. So anyway, so we're doing all that kind of stuff. But the twist is everywhere we go, there's this uh, brunette chick who looks very familiar 
And obviously both chicks are very attractive. And both of them, I'm sure I've known in my past, in my real life, now that I think about it. Like I had that impression at least. And so then there's this this dark haired chick and we will never like, we'll never like quite, you know, acknowledge each other's presence a hundred percent. But like, for instance, we were like in Venice, Italy or something. And like, uh, like me and the blonde chick, the innocent chick, we're all going on like a gondola ride underneath the bridge. And you know what I'm saying? She would like be on the bridge. The brunette chick would be on the bridge with their back to us. And like, right when we go under, she would like turn and like, you know, shoot me a glance. And it was just, it was very strange. So this probably went on for at least about four or five different little settings. And, uh, there's, there's sort of, uh, intensifying, I guess, so to speak in terms of our, uh, interactions. No, 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 no. Me and the brunette chick. Oh, so she's yeah, getting more so, intense. Exactly. Exactly. So she's like, kind of like one time she like bumped my arm, like when we were walking by each other and you know, we kind of, Oh, what the hell made exchange looks that way. And, uh, and so like, that's the thing. That's pretty much the whole dream. Like most of my dreams, nothing really got resolved. Um, but basically it was kind of like, I was out with the innocent, wholesome chick and this other chick, this kind of edgier brunette girl was kind of like stealing my attention away type deal somewhat. So anyway, that was it. No killing this week, nothing like that. But it, it was just very strange. Cause I mean, most of my dreams don't take place in, in cool places like Europe. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, I would <laughs> my like dream, that. My dream self got to take a little trip. Uh, a little vacation. Yeah, most of my dreams are just like in a dark dungeon fighting zombies or on the streets running from vampires or something. But uh, Yeah, that is a nice change. I think most of my dreams take place in like a 4x8 closet. That's terrible. I, I never are. feel like I have any sort of sense of uh, um, space Scale? in my dreams. No, like just like I, I can't. Uh, very claustrophobic dreams that's very weird no i definitely do i definitely a lot of my dreams i if especially they're pretty vivid i can i feel i feel like i can you know do anything or go anywhere damn it have you uh i love a life you have carlos <laughs> carlos have you ever lucid dreamt we talked about this last week on the podcast yeah <laughs> but have but i'm have editing you. that out have you I'm not sure. Exactly. We talked about this. No, didn't we? Not exactly. I, I, the term is. So, what do you what do you mean by lucid dream? Like, I, I think I know what you mean. I know what lucid means, and I know I mean, what controlling, dream. Controlling what's going on in the dream. Uh, I don't think so. I think the only thing I can control. We did talk about this part. The part I'm about to explain is kind of when I can snap out of it. I feel like I've I've done that okay. plenty of times where like stuff's getting too crazy. And I'm just like the hell with this. Before I end up dying, Matrix style in my dream, I don't want to. I don't want that to happen. So I'm just gonna go ahead and have a link hit me up, get on the little, you know, payphone and get out of there. Have you guys ever uh, died in your dream? Oh yeah, a couple it, times. It's weird, eh? Because you can't like. Well, I don't know. In my experience, I can't. Um, I can't kind of turn off the camera, you know. So like, uh, I'll be dead, but like I can person? still see what's going on. All my dreams are kind of like a mix between third person and first person. Yeah, I'm the same way. You know, but yeah, like my... I'll, I'll I'll die. Like I remember once I had my head cut off and I was like definitely dead, but I mean I could still, you know, the dream didn't end, so I could still see what was going on. So I was like, I knew I was dead, but I was like, I'm unkillable, kind of. Well, that's yeah, feel, pretty cool. I feel like every time I die in my dreams, the dream kind of ends. It's not like like I'm falling and as soon as I hit the ground, I wake up type thing, but it's like like I've 
bad dreams where like I'm attending my own funeral type thing, but I'm not like a ghost. I'm just some sort of like omniscient. That's pretty weird. Spirit, if you will. Ooh, you're like not... you're like uh the specter. Is that his name in DC? Sure. I think I was Sorry. Sure. The green king. Yeah. Oh, the specter. <laughs> Don't patronize I, me. I, sorry. I, was, <laughs> I wish I knew. I just wish I knew. <laughs> That's basically it. Step it up. Step it up on your comic book reading. I need to read more Wikipedia, I think. I think Ooh, that's, that's the that's... best way to read about comic books. No, no, no. But I mean, just to get the general rundown, darn it. I can't sit down and start with Action Comics Volume 1 and just get at it. Can't do that. Well, you just need to free up more time. I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. I just started so reading anyway, Spawn guys. from the beginning. Ooh, really? It's not, it's not as bad as I expected. You thought it was going to be bad? But it's not as good as I expected. It, it, I mean... Uh, <laughs> well, like, you know, there was sense. a time in my life where I thought it was going to be, like, it was, like, the best comic ever. I just hadn't, like, really read them all and stuff. And then going, you know, now in my life I went to go read it, and I was just thinking this is going to be cheesy 90s, you know, over-the-top stupid storylines. And it kind of is, but it's it's got a little kernel of something kind of cool. That's cool. Yeah. Has Todd McFarlane written anything else? Well, I mean, I'm sure he has, but, like, anything of significance, I guess? Uh, I don't. No, uh, I I know that his like big start was, um, with uh I could be totally wrong about this, but I think it's with was was with Spider Man. He did he did like the black suit Spider Man. I think he he created or co created Venom. Oh stuff wow, like that, which is pretty clear if you look at Spawn versus black suit Spider Man and Venom. It's like obviously has the same kind of visual aesthetic. Um, but I don't same know what idea. else he's written. Yeah. I, I I think. I mean, I don't know. I, I, he, he does write the first uh, several issues of Spawn and wrote wrote it for a while, but he is uh, not a good writer. No. 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 He's a good um, artist. He, he's, a, he's a good baseball memorabilia purchaser. Yeah. He kind of goes overboard with it, but then you buy like every ball in that in that uh, bid between Sosa and Maguire. Sosa and, uh, and Barry Bonds also, I believe. Was Sosa in that one? I thought he corked his bat and then got. I, I thought shamed. it was a uh, Bonds and Sosa. No, it was he was he was in the buying when uh, it was McGuire and Sosa. Okay, okay. Before before Barry Bonds. Eh, it's all juiced. Don't worry about it, Todd. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, buddy. Um, so that was my dream, anyway. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> Including the parts we just talked about. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. I've been uh, I've been reading this Killing Pablo book. I want to update you guys on this. Please do. Because, Please. Because this world that we live in is a crazy one. Um, I, I think Pablo Escobar, cocaine kingpin, uh, Colombia, he pretty much ran the country for about 10 or 15 years, it seems like. And the U.S. government said, uh, this guy is, is hurting our people. He's pumping tons of cocaine into our country. And I hadn't really thought of this, uh, which is maybe just stupid on my part, because I'm sure you guys have, is that <laughs> people, you know, people are buying cocaine and that money just goes back to Colombia, mm-hmm. you know, like it doesn't come back into the American economy. So tons of money's just leaving the country. Tons of drugs are coming into the country. So the government starts this big um, task force, Delta Force, uh, to take down Pablo Escobar. Um, but before all that, or kind of while America's like, okay, we need to we need to stop this guy. Uh, the Colombian government's trying to deal with Pablo Escobar. And the way Pablo Escobar gets stuff done, and I sort of talked about this uh, 
I think it was a couple podcasts ago, is that Pablo Escobar is just like, look, either take my bribe or I kill you. And he just stuck to his word. And he just killed anyone that got in his way. He didn't care who it was. If anyone spoke out against him publicly, that dude was dead. And so basically the Colombian government as a whole is just afraid to mess with Pablo Escobar. And so these these he uses like car bombs and he, he's, he blew up a couple planes and, you know, just random shootings and stuff. And so eventually the Colombian government's like, all right, like we need to cut a deal with Pablo Escobar. Like no negotiate with terrorists, basically, is what they decided to do. Mm. Um which is very interesting. And so um, Pablo Escobar said, I'll surround my, or I'll surrender myself um, under my own terms. And he demanded that he be put in a prison built by his people, um, monitored by his own, monitored by his own people, like as working as prison guards. Like not his own people, like the Colombians, like his own actual like, oh yeah crew. yeah his crew. Oh. Or I mean, maybe not people in the, in the cartel, but you know, just, not random people assigned by the government. Handpicked like he, people. He handpicks the people pretty much, yeah. I'll go to jail built by my handpicked people and run by my own handpicked people. His jail is incredible. So eventually, you know, the Colombian government's like, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. Um, but event, I mean, he. so Pablo's like, all right. like, and, and so he just keeps killing people. And Escobar really worked the media in saying that, you know, he was – he presented himself as like a national hero and that like the Colombian government was working with the United States government. And so, you know, they're, you know, they're working with the gringos, uh, you know, the, Hey, 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 <laughs> sorry, my, my bad. Um, you know, big capitalism conflicts and stuff like that. And so he would come out and say, you know, the government's working with America. I'm a true Colombian. Uh, I will die in this country, blah, blah, blah. So eventually the Colombian government goes, all right, just, just, we'll give you what you want, man. Stop killing people. And so he has this <laughs> he has this prison built on the side of a hill, basically, and it's um I guess at the beginning, my understanding of it was that the at the beginning of the whole thing it, it seemed sort of legit, but then as time went on, trucks kept coming in and delivering like just big screen TVs and couches <laughs> and stuff. And there's I mean there's a photo there's a photo in the uh in the book of his of his quote cell and it just looks like a, a luxury hotel room basically. Oh. Um and so eventually the Colombian government said, um we know we know this is going on because um there are people internally like signing off on these supplies too. And so um the president I and I forget his name, but the president's like, Look, we need to take him by force and put him in another prison. I need I need people to help me with that. And everyone's like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to die. Are you kidding me? I'm not doing that. So um, one guy eventually volunteers. He goes in. He gets taken hostage. And so they get a big military force. One guy. <laughs> one guy. Oh, well, th and then that's the funny thing. Like, uh, well, I guess I guess the president didn't, like, sign off on that. But the, the one guy, he was, like, the attorney general or something. I don't know. Or, like, the equivalent of, of such. Uh, he went out there and, like, the, the – uh, one of the higher up military officials was like, yeah, you should just go in there and talk to talk to Pablo Escobar and explain to him the situation. And he was like, all right, sure, let's do that. And so he goes in there, he gets taken hostage. Um, and so they get a big military force to get him out. And so they eventually do get him out, but Pablo Escobar escapes. And that's where I am in the book right now. Escapes uh, his own prison. He escapes <laughs> his own luxury prison. Um, and so... And it, it just gets me thinking about how cool, not cool, um, it, 
the concept of being above the law is like it, cool be, like like cool was definitely the word you were looking for it's there. cool the word. i mean it's horrible i mean you know people that are above the law are doing bad things it's horrible because... for everyone else that's that's regular but it's really cool for the person that's above the law really cool i mean he and he's more powerful than the government and it made me think of uh john dillinger i mean my extent of you know my knowledge of him is is basically uh public enemies the film mm-hmm. um but I, I mean the fbi unless that movie's full of crap and no i remember this the fbi was created essentially to track down people like john dillinger and so he created government branches and stuff and it got me thinking could anyone be above the law in the year 2011 and i don't think so I don't think that's possible anymore. Well, At least I, I mean, I think people these days are above international law. Like, you know, I mean, potentially Osama bin Laden, stuff like that. It's like you're above uh, or beyond beyond what we can kind of control. Well, I mean, I yeah, because I mean, like, law really is. international law is a heck of a lot more loose than domestic law it's true yeah but i mean you think about it it's still hard for like dictators to to function you know with the un and and all sorts of treaties and uh alliances and stuff it is hard harder than harder than it should seem to be above you know international law like somebody is gonna go nuts on you if you if you you know abuse your own people or uh you know try to attack other countries and so to to kind of be able to operate like that there is definitely some sort of you know, outlaw sort of, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, I, yes, I hear you. And I think the thing, one of the things most interesting about the whole Pablo Escobar thing is that this was in 1990. It's talking about like President Bush and Dan Quell and all this stuff. And I didn't realize it was that that recently. Very very recent. Very recent. Yeah. Which makes the whole thing a lot more crazy. Because, you know, like Dillinger, it's like, oh, you know. They just were, they just didn't have the means, you know. They didn't have the means to get them, and I guess were, in Colombia they didn't have the means either. Um, but America sank millions and millions of dollars into trying to get this guy in the year 1990, and he uh, gave them a run for their money for sure. For well, sure. I would say definitely the one a very important thing that you know the best outlaws have in common, I would say, is that they get the people on their side. Um, and so, you know, that gives them a, a myriad of, of places and, and methods of eluding capture or or, uh, or confrontation. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. You look at Robin Hood, you know, he stole from the rich <laughs> to give to the poor. <laughs> Robin, <laughs> Robin Hood? I don't know why you're laughing at that. Uh, was it, was it the pronunciation? Reasons. Was that it? it was, was that was one of them. Got yeah. me, Robin Hood. Robin Hood. Yeah. You know, Mr. Hood. <laughs> Partly well, because, saying. I mean... Robin Hood's not real. That's fine, but he's an OG outlaw, and he he got the people on his side. They wanted to help him because he helped them. Yeah, right? but I mean, isn't he isn't he like all good though? I'm not super familiar with the Robin Hood story, but no, dude, he 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 uh he raped and pillaged. For no, sure. he, he did. did not. <laughs> I he don't did know. Not. <laughs> I don't know. He I, robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. And yeah, and there you go. Looked really fancy. Oh, so that's fancy. Yeah. I'm just saying to be to be the best kind of outlaw, I think you have to get kind of the common man on your side because no one really likes police until you need them. Mm-hmm. You know, no, you're right. You're not going to be like a like a pedophile outlaw or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you're just like, a... <laughs> what would that? I'm trying to think. Uh, a pedophile above the law, like the government's trying to negotiate with this guy. He's like, I'm a, I've got this van. 
Yeah. I'm drive around the country. You don't know which one it is. You can't stop me. <laughs> it doesn't have windows in the back. <laughs> You'll never know. You'll never know. Um. So yeah. Uh. Well, that sounds like Pablo, a great book. Pablo Escobar. It's a great. It's a great book. It's uh. Well, it's a great topic. I'm not. I'm not so sure it's written super well, but the the topic is crazy. So. Hmm. So you just That's... took the topic away and and just uh, knocked the author. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I uh, I just read uh, the book that I read before Killing Pablo's uh, War. I can't remember if I talked about it on this or not. I don't think so. War by Sebastian uh, Younger. I don't know J U N G E R, and there might be an umlaut in there somewhere. Uh, is that a the, um, is that a biography of the band War? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, no, it has it's um, that's who's the author of Perfect Storm. It has to do with um, the Corngold Valley. I don't know if you guys have seen Restrepo. No, I've I have been it. meaning to watch that though. Oh man, oh man, that's a whole another can of worms there. But yeah, definitely. So it's like War is basically the the book version of Restrepo. Restrepo was made by Sebastian J and a photographer Tim Hetherington. Yeah, it just One died, of those guys right? dead. Who yeah. just died with yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and that book that book's crazy and it's written super well. So, so that's why I mentioned that. Like, Killing Pablo is not written as well. I'm not saying I think his name's Mark Bowden. I'm not saying he's a bad author or anything. <laughs> really. That's what I think about that author. You dropping sound effects on this now? <laughs> that was a fart sound effect on that author. That was a tight, a tight squeaky one. <laughs> Whatever. The book is cool. At the end of the day, it's a page turner, and I think that's I think that's important. I, I like that uh, you juxtaposed me telling people that I'm reading Spawn with you telling people that you're reading like back-to-back, heavy-hitting, uh, you know, historical novels. So thank you, well, uh, thank you. For you that. know, it's, <laughs> good, it's uh, well, I want to read Spawn to defend <laughs> you. I want to read Spawn, um, but I feel like I don't read enough nonfiction. Yeah, it's not really a, a genre that I've explored too much, and so I sort of uh, a lot of crappy writers. A lot of bad nonfiction writers out there. No, no, no. I mean, the, the like I said, it's trite, but damn it, it's true. The world that we live in is totally nuts. Like, I think there's enough stuff going on uh, that we could stay away from fiction for a while and just check out what's going on in our world. You know? Yeah, but see, the problem with that argument is that fiction well, no, I'm not, is I'm not saying based on truth. I mean, no, 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 totally. Fiction is a lens through which we look at truth. Agreed. Boom. Boom, yeah. Doug. That was no, not... nice. <laughs> don't turn the, don't flip it. Don't you flip it on me right now? The thing is, sometimes uh, would you say that nonfiction is stranger than fiction? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> the truth, maybe. I'm, str- I'm stroking my big long gray beard right now. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Thought about it. Thought about it during the Will Ferrell movie. Ooh, which you didn't watch. I haven't seen it. Thank you. Good. That looks weird. <laughs> Whatever. I've had good things. Mm. So what else is going on, Carlos? What what else you have? Uh... Yeah, speaking of speaking sure. of pedophilia, um, I was watching uh, To Catch a Predator today. And, uh, <laughs> is that show very, still on? I mean, it's just reruns and like they have like all these outtakes, so to speak, but it's just the same thing basically. Bl- like bloopers? <laughs> yeah, not no, no no no. I wouldn't call them bloopers. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't. But uh, I, it's it's a weird show. I always feel weird watching it. Um, because it's it's very entertaining, but at the same time it's it's disturbing in a number of ways. I would say obviously first and foremost, you have these these you know would be or in a lot of cases pedophiles, and uh, 
that's already weird and sucks. But uh, I, I also don't like Chris Hansen's basically role in the whole thing where he, he totally catches these guys by surprise and has this, you know, shit eating grin on his face. Like he, he's got them by the balls. Sorry for my French in this last couple. No, of I agree though. I hate, that I, I know, I know how you get heated, but it's just, it's just Anthony. like, uh, I mean, I don't know if he feels like he's got like this kind of God complex for, you know, half hour at a time. And that kind of bothers me too. But on some level, <laughs> and this is one of my favorite, uh, comedic, <laughs> it might sound weird saying com- comedy in regards to the catch predator, but in general, along with, uh, people falling down, uh, one of my favorite comedic, uh, I don't know the word tropes or whatever yeah. is when people, when people think they're on the top of the world and then they instantly are just taken down to the bottom. I don't know. To me, that's very entertaining to see that somebody thinks they've just, they've got everything figured out and then they just get their knees cut off at the knees. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, they got the maybe world. That's some, maybe there's something wrong with me, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially when we're talking about pedophiles, that's some funny stuff right there, man. Let me tell you. Now, doesn't doesn't Chris Hansen? He gets like um, he gets kind of like creative with how he like reveals himself. I guess like doesn't like he takes it really seriously. This isn't this is this didn't happen, but something along the lines like the dude will come in, you know, like the girl. Or guy or kid or whatever, girl or guy, whatever. It's like, hey, I'm in the bathroom. Come on in. And like, uh, the dude will say like, hey, like, do you want me to open a beer or something like that? And he'll come out and say, yeah, sure, I'll have one. Like, he'll like <laughs> yeah. jump into the conversation and be like, take a seat over there, please. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, uh, he busts out of the cupboard and he's dressed like a whole bunch of plates. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one for you right here. <laughs> Take a seat, please. Uh, the the thing that's crazy about that show is the sheer number of guys that show up to these stings. Mm-hmm. Like just like one day at one time, this one single sting operation, and I'm maybe I'm off base here, but like fifty or sixty people roll up. You know, like in, in like a day, sure. In a day, and the, and this is just local. It's not like national or anything. It's people like in the Petaluma area. Just like one guy comes in and then they arrest him and take him to the side, and another guy pulls up, they arrest him, they take him to the yeah. side. And, and there's they... times where they have to like hurry up and finish up with the first guy because the other guy's showing up. Totally. Yeah. It's <laughs> they're really ju- it's a juggling act. I mean, I don't know how they do it. They must have these guys on like 15 minute increments, and they're they're just like, because what if someone's late? What if you have two guys? Yeah, can... Didn't they, hey, they've can... had two people can... showing up at the same time, haven't they? Yeah, and they they've dealt with it, but I mean, is is the well, is the decoys are very punctual though. <laughs> very punctual. Of course, is the decoy like, hey, can you get here at seven forty two? Yeah, it's that true. It's true. That's how you know. That's a, that's how you know it's a sting operation. <laughs> that's how you know. Weird times. You shouldn't be saying this on the podcast, man. <laughs> and and then, I don't know if you know this, but Chris Hansen was just busted. No, this is like, I mean, this is just, I just hate that guy. So I, I just you know, revel in this, but he was just busted for cheating on his wife. Oh, bummer. Not with, Why, not with, with a little girl? With a no, little girl? not with jailbait or anything like that. Man. Why is everybody doing that these days? Or have they always been doing that? They've always been doing that. Wife cheating? That sucks. That's the oldest profession. <laughs> Since prostitution. Yeah, wife cheating. <laughs> That's sad. It's lucrative. It can be Tiger Woods, y'all. You heard about that? Lucrative for, no, who? Tiger Woods. <laughs> Is that a mascot for someone? Okay, never mind. I don't watch sports. I know. You read comic books. 
<laughs> I should have never brought that up. That's good. That's good. That's fine. Um, Carlos, what are you reading? You're you're always reading some interesting stuff. Um, at the moment, I am reading the Long Goodbye. Riley was kind enough to to lend it to me, uh, by Raymond Chandler. And uh, it's good so far. I I kind of took a break from it when I went to L.A. So I'm gonna kind of start all over. It's not it's not like a super difficult read, but um, it's it's very well written. It's kind of got the the quote unquote hard boiled uh, kind of narrative uh, from uh, the genre of noir, where you have the the kind of uh, wisecracking, uh, you know, intelligent but also kind of a a loser in a way. Yeah, down uh, on his luck, kind of detective. Um, and he's kind of embroiled in this this scheme uh, of multiple sources, and he kind of just gets in his own way a lot of times by getting in other people's problems. And it, so that's interesting. It's one of my my favorite genres of entertainment, definitely, um, because there's always some sort of uh, bigger picture, which I think is very cool. It, it starts off maybe with somebody getting murdered, but in these kind of stories, there's always, you know, somebody that's very influential or, or big at the top that's kind of ordering these things. And, and to see kind of the, the interaction between the detective and, uh, you know, the, the femme fatale character and, and the kind of head honcho, it's, uh, it's very tense and very kind of touch and go a lot of times. You, you know, uh, the detective always puts himself in these, these uh, situations where he's about to get killed or, or what have you. And it's, it's really cool. I think. Uh, I think it's cool. Yeah, my favorite things about like that noir genre is just like uh, the protagonist is so flawed and like so weak in a lot of ways. You know, they're not like these superheroes that are just or these super sleuths even that are that are figuring things out. They're just kind of like they take beatings, they get left for dead. They're you know messing up. They miss clues let, and they let just, chicks take advantage of them. They're <laughs> dude, they let, yeah, constantly. <laughs> you know, and it's just it it works really well, and also it it doesn't rely on big M Night Shyamalan type twists. It just relies right. on subtle little through lines and and plot connections that which are don't cool though. Convenient. Shyamalan twists are really cool. So. No, <laughs> I'm so sick of movies. Every movie having a big twist, and if it doesn't have some like secret ending, then it's not beloved not by everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. I mean. When you have a twist, if you kind of earn it, it can be it can be very powerful. But if you just do it in kind of a way because the audience, you kind of don't respect your audience, uh, your target audience especially, um, then it just feels cheap and kind of tacked on, and kind of a, a crutch for a lazy writer, a lot of times. Absolutely, I agree. So. Because all you really have to do to have a twist is come up with something that's, you know. Um, unexpected and then obfuscate all the facts throughout the book or the movie or whatever and then in a sort of seemingly clever but on closer inspection pretty convenient way you know present this this uh truth and then that's a twist and then... sure that's all you'd have to do it doesn't have to be out of left field like i hate a lot of twists where you, you obviously it's cool if you don't see it coming that makes it a twist but if it's such a twist that it's like it just seems completely, uh, I guess, irresponsible, like with a ton of red herrings and um, just kind of other distractions like a magician would do 
to me, that's just not not as well earned. Exactly, um, I agree. As a quick side note, Riley, I don't know. You, did you see the finale of The Killing at all? I did, but we should probably not spoil anything for anybody. Okay, well, I'll just say, uh, how did you feel about it? There's definitely a twist, I'll say. Uh, I was surprised. I don't want to say too much, like I just said, but I was surprised that it's not a standalone series. Right. Ooh, right. like it, the show cannot continue? The show will continue. Has I, mean, to, well, I know it will, but like it could end there and it, it would no. be... No, I was expecting that. I was expecting oh. it to be standalone as like a single season uh, of of a case. And oh, okay. Without, you it's know, all... giving spoilers, but I mean, that's fair enough. I think you're not going to get like the big answers that you're looking for with it. And I think that they missed out on something there. I think that TV shows really need to be moving toward something like that, even if they want to have re- recurring, you know, characters in the different seasons, I think that standalone seasons are a much better way. Even if you have, you know, the characters are growing, and obviously you you don't just treat everyone as uh, a complete individual storyline, but I mean, I, I would like to see more uh, wrapping up of, of story arcs in shows. Especially in a police procedural, I mean, why not? Yeah, with you know? one case that spans the entire season perfect. i mean I, I agree perfect i think what they must be doing is some sort of like twin peaks thing because that show's reminding me of twin peaks from the beginning except in kind of not as quirky not as quirky exactly but um i think they must be doing something where it will be tied up and then at the same kind of time we'll be having another case going on right. i feel like a lot of people hated it the ending though so we'll see i haven't been checking that out but i would not be surprised yeah is it worth watching yes I would say so. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. It's an incredible show. I mean, I find it hard to dislike the endings of shows that I liked every other part of. I mean, Twin that, Peaks a, is a good example. That's the thing. Can you judge a whole show and hate it just because you didn't necessarily like the ending? To me, that just seems kind of, you know, rookie. It is a little rookie. You, like, is this your first? I mean, is this your first TV show? Did you not realize that? Exactly. They, you know. Exactly. So. Yeah, like some sure, of my I'm favorites. Sure, sure. Is this your first TV show? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of that going on with the people that didn't like it. Mm-hmm. My, sure. my only argument against that would be that when it happens all within the same season, especially on something like AMC where it's really plotted out from the very beginning, it's like they knew where they were going. They could have ended it had right. they wanted to. Right. It's not like, you know, John from Cincinnati or Deadwood, um, Twin Peaks, they got canceled. Right. Uh, Especially with John from Cincinnati. John from Cincinnati lost three whole episodes where it just wasn't able to kind of finish even the story arc it was starting. Um, with... How's that petition going, by the way, for John from Cincinnati? You, you got a lot of signatures on that? Uh, uh, yeah, is there really one? Is there really a petition? Because I will sign that. No, I was I was implying that you'd created one. but uh, anyway. I, I would if I thought it was flawed. I, I love that season or series just as, as a standalone uh TV series, even even then, it's just ten episodes. Yeah, it's sad. I guess it's sad. I don't know. It works. I I think it works, but it it's it's not a big meaningful ending like people I think wanted. They wanted to know if he was an alien or not, and you don't really get that. What the hell? I don't know anything about that show. Is is that really what it's what it is? He yeah, could be kind an of. Alien? He's he's definitely something. He's huh. uh, he's, he's got powers. He's a very strange and powerful. Um, sort of, more. He's more of a literary device than a an actual character. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
Interesting. It's That's good. You too, should check it out. Too many shows, man. Too many shows. You always say that. You never finish any of them. This was like because there's too many. I'm proving my point here. Like ten episodes in John Cincinnati, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Just watch it, man. Do you take know how many episodes of Homicide Life on the Street there are? Do you do you know how many that you actually want to watch? Zero. I want to shut up, man. Riley, have you seen Homicide? Uh, I saw it a little bit when it was on, when it would like crossover with Law and Order and stuff. But oh, um, Jesus. no, not really. Okay. Okay. If you really want to watch it, you'd have watched it by now. Is what I'm saying. I'm currently watching it. I liked it better when they, when it was called The Wire. No, shut up. Yeah, and when it was on 15 years before The Wire. <laughs> is that what you mean? <laughs> no, it's it's a good show. Shut your mouth. But I mean, is there a reason to go back and watch it, having watched The Wire? I mean, isn't it kind of like a re or like a, an original, uh, sort Horror, of lesser lesser version of The Wire? No. No, I don't think so. What, no, what's based the on the same book? What's the connection between the two? It's based on the same book. Yeah. Is Homicide, that is that even true? Yeah, Homicide: Life on the Killing Streets or whatever. Oh. I don't know. They're oh. different. One has Belzer. One has Belzer. That's all. That's all you need to know. I don't know. I don't see the connection between the two really. I mean, Baltimore, but and you know, Homicide and cops and stuff, but I don't. Yeah, same writer. There's no drug. There's no drugs going on at least at this point. Same writer? No, I don't think so. Really? Yes. David oh, I'm, Simon. I'm just blowing it then. I'm blowing it. You had a good run, Doug. You watched a lot of it. You know, it was cool when you watched it. So that's good. Why did you buy <laughs> it? <laughs> you didn't know all these things. These, I don't these know why to me are the selling points. Well, you just you, you just it, you bought it because of the case. The case it came in. Have you seen that case, man? That is it's a very, beautiful very cool. case. I'm looking this up right now because I'm very. Uh, Okay, well, it wasn't created by uh, the man that you mentioned, Paul Anastasio. Well, That's right. it. Maybe I'm way wrong. But it's definitely based Whatever. on David Simon's book, Homicide Life on the Killing Streets. So it's not the same writer. Or a year, at... in, a year on the Killing Streets. So I'm right. I guess you're right. Uh, just, just checking. Uh, just checking. Just the checking. book was subsequently fictionalized as the television drama Homicide Life on the Street. On which he, Simon served as a writer and producer. Oh, he did write for it. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, he just probably well, didn't it, have the control he had with the wire. Oh, that's a great show. I don't know. I don't know why. First seven up, now homicide. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. You're just bagging on, <laughs> bagging on things I enjoy. That's it. Uh. So I think we should wrap this up. And uh, it was good talking to you guys. Um, we're gonna we're gonna go what? out with an interview I I did recently with a really interesting guy, and um, I hope you enjoy it. It was my first, so be easy on me. And uh, it was good talking to you, Carlos. Thank you as always. And uh, and Doug. It was a pleasure. Thank you all. We'll see you next time. Bye. Case Van Ganuchten is a PhD student at UC Berkeley. His group, the Berkeley Arsenic Alleviation Group, or BAAG, aims to provide affordable and sustainable technologies that remove arsenic from groundwater. Well, Case, it's good to have you here. It's great to be here, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming out. My pleasure. So, uh, we're talking today about basically arsenic, arsenic in the water and, and what mm-hmm. you're doing at uh, University of California, Berkeley. That's right. So tell, tell me a little bit about the program you're in right now. So I'm in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, um, but really my 
my emphasis, I think, is more uh, more chemistry than anything else, uh, especially soil chemistry and geochemistry. Okay. Um, and a lot of the work I do has to do with uh, using synchrotrons. Explain those just a little bit. Right. So a, a synchrotron is uh, oftentimes they're attached to linear accelerators. Um, like the one at Stanford is is a uh, attached to the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Okay. Um, and in synchrotrons, uh, really what they're used for is they can produce really sensitive x-rays. And these x-rays are a very specific energy. And I use these x-rays to characterize the particles that we're making. And I guess I should probably talk a little bit about the particles. Please do. The, the uh, particles that you are making... Mm-hmm. Deal specifically with arsenic. Yes. How how so? So our, our our technology is a very cheap and efficient way of removing arsenic from drinking water that's been contaminated with arsenic. Um, basically, what we do is we insert just your normal kind of iron, iron sheets of iron or iron nails into the contaminated water, and we pass an electro electric current through the pieces of iron using a simple power source like a car battery or a PV cell. Um, and this corrodes the iron in the same way that an iron pipe corrodes. And that produces rust. And, you know, a lot of times you don't really think of rust as being... You think of rust as being like a nuisance, I guess you could say. But rust is incredibly reactive. The surface of rust is extremely reactive. And arsenic, when it encounters rust binds to the surface of it. And so to remove the arsenic in the drinking water, after we pass this current, we produce the rust. Arsenic binds to the surface of the rust, and you can remove the arsenic by removing the rust through filtration or gravitational settling. Okay, so you mentioned gravitational settling. Um, I I take it that uh, this is something that is currently used for for arsenic uh, removal? In this field, um, this process is called electrocoagulation. And it's not the exact, like, you know, passing a current through a piece of iron isn't used very frequently in developed areas. But because it's so cheap, mm-hmm. I, I'd say most of the research in this field has been in less developed areas. It, it works really well for arsenic, but it also removes several other contaminants. All kinds of organic compounds and several like chromium selenium different different kinds of because really what you're making is this is rust and like i said rust is incredibly reactive so once you start passing the current you get rust which you can visibly see and it's easily removable what is it about rust in 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 particular that makes these uh particles want to bond to it i mean what is it what's why is it special in that in that way that that that's a that's a good that's a fantastic question and um, it has to do with how the electrons of the iron atom, um, how many there are, and where they are located. In the most simplest way, you can think of, because all of these things happen on the surface of the rust, it's not really iron atoms that are, that are the thing that's, that's reactive. It's the rust. And the reason why the rust is reactive is because it has such a high surface area. What are you attempting with the research that you're doing to to change this this uh you know process that is is to, to make it more efficient 
to make it no. more efficient? Is that what you're? Well, okay. See, so there's something you have to know about about doing about doing research. Science isn't linear, so when you you, you don't exactly you know think of a problem and go try and solve it. Okay. I know I know that it, it might seem that way because I'm working on, on a technology where we have a problem and we're trying to solve it. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing this kind of when you're doing this kind of work, you're really on a quest for better understanding of things. Um, rust is really just iron oxides. I don't know if I mentioned that or not. But what I'm trying to do is understand what kind of iron oxide we're making. Really, really understand the structure of it. And I'm talking molecular scale, atomic scale, where each of these atoms of iron are in the structure of the particles that we're making, and then how arsenic binds to the surface. So I'm, I'm not really... I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm out there trying to solve a problem, really. I'm, I'm out there trying to get a, a better understanding of what we're doing. And then, then we can start to say different things about you know, the efficiency. We can make better predictions about what's going to happen given a certain groundwater chemistry, things like that. Because although you may not be actively trying to solve a problem, there, there are, is a problem oh, right it's, now. It's a, it's a, a, a problem of... Epic proportion. It's not only is it mind bottling, but it's mind boggling. <laughs> um, it's it's really it's unbelievable that this could be happening on such a massive scale, and not very many people know about it. I guess that's I don't know if that's condescending, but no, I think that I think that that's okay, often the case. I mean, what region is is most affected by this uh, arsenic problem? So arsenic is a worldwide problem. We have it in California, in the Central Valley. Uh, it's been detected in, in large concentrations in groundwater in Argentina and Chile. Um, but I think where, where it's the biggest problem is in Southeast Asia. Naturally occurring arsenic is found in different minerals. Uh, so one is called arsenopyrite, and it just so happens that the Himalayas have large concentrations of arsenic-containing minerals. And so what happens is minerals weather. And the Himalayas, they weather into this geographical formation called the Bengal Basin. And that's where Bangladesh and parts of India are. Uh, Bangladesh is really, it's this problem of naturally occurring arsenic in groundwater is it's out of control. It's a gig- It's a. It's the biggest mass poisoning in human. It's the biggest mass poisoning in human history. Would you say Bangladesh has the the greatest problem with it right now? Absolutely. What uh, kind of scale are we talking about? In in Bangladesh, it's been found in groundwater at over a hundred times the World Health Organization standard, uh, and the standard is really low too. It's ten parts per billion. There's been a recent paper that came out in a medical journal. And it had to do, I think it was put together by uh, a group working on the, a, a group of epidemiologists. And the, the paper mentioned that there was an estimated 40 million people out of the 160 million people in Bangladesh that drink arsenic-contaminated water daily. It's very difficult for groups working on arsenic remediation to work in Bangladesh. And that's because... Some recent legislation made it so that the sludge from arsenic removal treatment is considered 
to be radioactive. So you have to dispose of it in a concrete landfill. And when you're trying to treat arsenic in the cheapest and most efficient way, that's going to kill most of your work. I, I suspect uh, a big reason why is, is because this problem has been going on for decades. And that part of the world has been a, a subject for research for many years. And so a lot of institutions go into these countries and they... They do research. They interview people. They take, you know, hair and nail samples, and then they never come back. And the people that are living there are—they just—they n- nobody's doing anything for them. So when they go to these countries, they, you know, they they do what they have to do for their research, but the the people are still there. And eventually, I mean, I would be really pissed if. If somebody came into my house and said, can we take some hair samples? And then, I don't know if, I'm sure they didn't promise them clean water or something like that, but you might think that. Yeah, I think there's an implicit promise of, of yeah. you know, clean water. If, if someone's coming, I think you mentioned it's from, you know, from the 70s, we, we've been going over there yeah, the, and saying the same thing. Yeah, that's that's one of the most interesting things about this, this whole problem is that, you know, in, in Bangladesh they have a really high population density and the sanitation in that country is uh, not so good. So they have uh, the, the surface water has really high levels of pathogens. And so an aid organization, I think it was UNICEF went in there in the 1970s and said, okay, let's, let's dig hundreds of thousands of groundwater tube wells all throughout the country. But, one of the contaminants that they did not test for was arsenic. And so now the surface in, in Bangladesh and in parts of India, the surface water is really bad. The quality is terrible. But you have a groundwater well in your backyard that you can walk 10 steps out of your house, pump groundwater out of out of your tube well in your backyard. It looks great. It, it tastes great. It has all of the elements that our bodies need, calcium, magnesium, phosphate, etc., but it also has arsenic. When you drink this water over a period of time, then you start to get arsenic poisoning. And arsenic poisoning is a debilitating disease. It, it has a, one of the problems with arsenic poisoning is that it has a high latency period, meaning that it takes a long time for you to show the signs. And so one of the first things that, one of the first signs that you show or that people with arsenicosis, which is the disease, the first signs of arsenicosis are these, um, these welts on the palms of your hands uh, and the bottom of your feet. But you get these, uh, these sores on your palms and they're very painful. And, you know, just to confound all of these problems, most of the people that are living in this world, they make $2 a day and... They are really they work for sustenance. They work for their food that day. And when you can't work because your hands hurt so bad because you have these lesions on your hands, I mean you can't you can't feed your family. You're you're not going to eat. You're just, and and that's that's a huge that's a whole another issue. But okay, so UNICEF went in there, dug a whole bunch of groundwater wells, uh. And that happened in the 70s. And it was because they wanted to stop people from drinking the surface water. Because that, really, surface water, when you have uh, a diarrheal disease like cholera or something like that, mm. 
I mean, there's no there's no ten year latency period like there is with arsenicosis. So you get these diarrheal diseases, and if you don't have clean water, your cholera kills you very quickly. So they really ended up trading a short term problem for a long term problem. Exactly. Because you can't see arsenic or taste it or touch it or smell it, oftentimes there's a lot of misinformation in the areas where arsenic is a problem. And that is a huge challenge to implementing a technology because you might be in a village where people have no idea that they're drinking groundwater contaminated with arsenic. And so that part of the problem is... You know, it's it's not a it's not a technical problem per se, and I think a lot of institutions, a lot of laboratories, a lot of researchers that work on the technical part of removing arsenic from groundwater, that's the part that is often left out of the design. Is thinking about the end user, and that's that's probably the most important part. I mean, you you can remove arsenic in the lab, but if it doesn't work in the field, if people don't use it, what's the point? Yeah. What And how would you implement this? Would this be a household-by-household household, uh, sort of process? Would this be, um, you know, on, on the, in the thousands, the ten thousands? Would you be doing, you know, well-by-well? Well? This part of the project is, I think, not a part of research that most universities go through. It's... How, I mean, there's, there's really, there's two things to think about. One is what is the role of the university in even getting something implemented in the field? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes researchers, especially at research institutions, they're not charged with the task of getting something implemented. They're charged with doing the fundamental science, the fundamental research. That's something that our group has struggled to understand is what's our role in getting this technology actually implemented. That I think is definitely something that should, that the university system or university institution should think about is how might this, or what's the best plan to get this thing implemented. But I think the university's role isn't exactly to be the people, you know, in the field getting this thing implemented. That said, so our, our implementation strategy is really, it's based on a community scale treatment facility. And I, we frequently, we call that a, a community scale water kiosk, where the village runs this water treatment center for themselves. It's the village that's actually purchasing the water from themselves and all of the money that's made um, when the water is purchased goes to maintaining the facility. And from there, you can, you can ensure all the quality control is there. You can ensure that everything is maintained properly. The village also, all of the money that's made from selling the water goes to operating and ma maintaining the water kiosk. I believe that Instead of really the way that you change things isn't by giving somebody something. You, you can go into a country, give somebody a filter, you know, give, dig somebody a well, but unless you teach them, and ultimately the most important part is, is empowering them to treat the water themselves, 
that it's not going to be sustainable. And have you made any advancements that may improve the efficiency of this process? Yes. So I think uh, one of the one of the biggest challenges right now is that when we start to generate the rust, there are these naturally occurring ions like calcium and magnesium, but also silicate and phosphate that constrict the particle size. And that is a practical issue for treatment because smaller, the smaller the particle, the harder it is to remove from the water itself. So even though it's it's you know has arsenic bound to the surface. Now the challenge is in removing the particle. So what is it that you found that leads to a, a better a better system? So this is this is actually kind of an interesting story because I was in the lab, uh, just you know my second semester at Berkeley, and I was just started working on this project. And one of my jobs was to actually get a measurement of how large or how small, just a measure of the particle diameter of the rust or of the iron oxides that we were making. But to use the particle size analyzer, you needed a, a very high concentration of the rust. So this would take, in normal, when we um, apply the current in a normal test, to generate that high concentration of rust, you would have to leave the current on for several weeks or something like that. So instead of keeping the current on for a long time, we decided to boost the current. And what that did is it accelerated the corrosion of the iron and generated a completely different mineral. And this mineral, it's actually called green rust, believe it or not. That's its, that's its uh, mineral name. Like if you if you go on Google and type green rust, you'll get a whole bunch of mineralogical information. And so when we were when we were doing this, it was me and one of my um, really good friends, Sarah. Uh, both had no idea what we were doing. But when when we actually started making all these particles, we noticed that instead of making orange rust, it's all of a sudden it's dark, dark black, dark green. So we thought we did something wrong. We thought we busted the power supply or, or something weird happened. Um, and so we got really scared, but we still took a sample and, um, we decided to, you know, put, turn the current back down and just run it for a really long time to get the orange rust sample. But while we were doing that, we noticed that the sample that we took, we put in a little, a little vial and in the time it took to, you know, rearrange everything back in the lab, it had already settled and the the water looked completely clear. So, yeah, we didn't really know what we had done, um, but we knew that it settled quickly. That's excellent. You yeah. thought you'd broken something and it, and it turned out to be a... Yeah, we didn't really know what the hell it, we were doing. Fair to call it a breakthrough? I mean, is that... No, I, no. I mean, it's... I mean, it, it has the... I would say it's got potential. It has the potential to really boost the efficiency of this process that we're doing. And the way you did it was just by cranking it up. Yeah, just I like your style. Turn... <laughs> I got the need for speed. <laughs> yeah, all I did was boost boost the current. You know, try to get crazy and got some good stuff going on. Now I don't know, dude. It was I couldn't say this enough. I had no idea what I was doing, and it turned out to be something that could potentially be a a, a, a breakthrough. Yeah. Well, Why? you might not have. Excuse me. You might not have had any idea what you're doing, but you certainly recognize what you had done and I think that that's uh, 
an important part of it. Sure, absolutely. Like you know, I mean, I, I think that's how that's how science works a lot. Is that you you might not know what the result is going to be, but once you make the observation that something has worked, that's when you go back and really rigorously try to understand why it happened. Well, Case, thank you so much for coming here and enlightening me and enlightening uh, the listeners. My, pl- I mean, I love talking about this stuff, man. It's great. Is there, is there anywhere you can uh, can direct people that are that are interested in this? Our our website is under construction. How's that? But it's arsenic.lbl.gov. Well, Case, it was great talking to you. Thank you again, buddy. My pleasure, man. 